0: do want to get a time check again? I explained in the first service earlier in this that uh, I'm kind of a watch guy, okay, and also a cheapskate, I mean a frugal individual. So I got this used on eBay. And it's a, sometimes it keeps really, it's a mechanical watch, no less, if you even know what that is anymore, the kind you actually have to wind, right? And it keeps great time sometimes, but this morning, it was losing about five minutes, Every five minutes, so which is fine with me, because you see, that gives me a whole lot of time to preach here. But, so what time do you got, Libs? Woo! It's still keeping time. Keeps on ticking, because it takes a licking. All right. No, that was Timex. Not a Timex. Well, we are in the Gospel of Mark. We actually started last week as the Easter message. I introduced the book, which we will be in until I finish it, or I die, or the Lord returns. And one of those three things... Uh, I'm going to begin this morning by taking us through the first chapter, beginning in verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him and all the people of Jerusalem and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River confessing their sins. And John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, after me one is coming who is mightier than I and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you With the Holy Spirit. And it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And immediately coming up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the Spirit like a dove descending upon him. And a voice came out of the heavens Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild beasts. And the angels were ministering to him. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Remember that... Part of the doctrine of inspiration, as it's called, that is how we got the scriptures that we have, part of that doctrine of inspiration means that not only are the words themselves inspired by God, but it also means that the placement of those words on the page is also inspired by him, in the original autographs, of course. So when we are trying to rightly divide the word of truth, we don't want to ignore the juxtapositioning of one thought with another. In other words, juxtaposition, when something is juxtapositioned to this, it means where one thing is in relation to another, spatially. I mention this because in the book of Mark, this is pretty important to understand what's going on with Mark's narrative. He has one thought right here, and then all of a sudden, boom, he's onto another thought right here in the very next breath, or even in the same breath, and then boom, another one. You're going to see this as I go through here. But even that is inspired by God. Well, as I mentioned last week, Mark begins his particular record of what is called the gospel of Jesus Christ. He begins his record of the Savior's time on earth with Jesus already being an adult. His remarks right out of the gate are prefaced by the Old Testament prophecy of Isaiah concerning John the Baptist, the one who was foretold to be the one who would come and prepare the way for the announcement of the Messiah. So Mark picks up with Jesus coming to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. And the way Mark pens this, again, inspired by God to do so, John is baptizing, Jesus shows up, John dunks him, and coming up out of the water, this dove appears and is seen, and the voice of God is heard, saying, Thou art my beloved Son, in thee I am well pleased. And because of the way Mark records this, the very next verse, the reader kind of is almost led to imagine Jesus is still dripping wet from being baptized, apparently chased out into the wilderness by the Holy Spirit to be tempted, as we imagine a trail of watery footprints with Jesus pulling his hair back to get the hair out of his eyes so he can see as he disappears off into the sunset. He ends up in a deserted and a dangerous place. Mark records, letting us know that there were dangerous wild beasts out there. And there he remains for 40 days being tempted by Satan, but also ministered to by angels, holy messengers of God. Then the very next verse, remember the idea of juxtapositioning. John's been arrested and Jesus is in Galilee. It's like there's no time passed between any of this. It's boom, 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 boom. And yet considerable time has gone down the line here. But that's not the way Mark portrays it. And that is intentional. So what are we supposed to understand by this? Instead of just guessing. Let's remember a cardinal rule of biblical interpretation. Which is, Scripture interprets Scripture. So, what we're going to do is, is, in this case, we need to find another source for the same incident if there is one, which of course now there is, and in this case, we're going to look at the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew includes some things that Mark doesn't mention. So we're going to, going to go to Matthew chapter 3, verse 14 and 15. Jesus comes to be baptized, but John, Matthew tells us, tried to prevent him, saying, I have need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answering said to him, Permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And then John permitted him. Now let's go back to Mark. Mark tells us in verse 4 that John's baptism is for repentance for forgiveness of sins. Jesus doesn't need to be baptized. But Jesus' whole coming to earth to be the representative of sinful man and his substitute necessitated that Jesus be fully identified as such. And so the one and the only one who never needed to be baptized, being sinlessly perfect, humiliates himself, allowing himself, the perfect one, to be baptized by a man who, apart from the man being baptized, would himself be headed for a Christless eternity. So when John protests that this is all backwards, you should be baptizing me, Jesus, we know from Matthew that Jesus says, in the King James Suffer it to be so now, for this is necessary to complete my coming in your place. Paraphrasing the end there. John says, basically, in essence, okay, got it, you're going down. So you see, Mark's concern for some details has no concern for others. He gives us a bigger picture than, in a sense, than, say, Luke, who tells us at the outset of his record of the same things, that his was done with meticulous study and a particular attention to detail. This is why we have four different gospel accounts. I was, I was thinking about that, and, you know, four different gospels tell us four different things. I was thinking about Dave Kleinert's photos. Now, I don't know if you know, but when you're over at, uh, if you're at there, or even in Augusta the hospitals there, there's a lot of photos, nature scenes up on the walls and stuff. And if you look down in the corner, most of them are by Dave Kleinard, who goes to this church. And so I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about some of the really uh, cool uh, photos that Dave puts on Facebook and all, and sometimes... Dave will have, for example, just recently had a picture of a a stand of trees. It was a winter scene and they were off across this snowy metal and it was just in the distance, these trees with a cool uh, uh, horizon and all. But then in another picture they might have what's called a macro photo of one of those trees, but just the bark, a real close-up image. Now, basically, they're a picture of the same thing, but those two pictures give us two different emotions, and they tell us two different things about the same thing. That's why we have four gospel narratives. So after Jesus is baptized, fulfilling yet another aspect of his substitutionary work on our behalf, Mark, again, without even losing a breath, scoots Jesus out to the wilderness and for what? To be tempted, satisfying yet another qualification to be our acceptable substitute, and this is what? Another writer, not a gospel writer, but the writer of the book of Hebrews in the New Testament, tells us about this. In chapter 4, verse 15, the writer says, We do not have a high priest, referring to Jesus, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. So what does that do for us? Well, among other things, when we are praying to Jesus about, say in particular, about personal struggles. We're not just praying, you know, to the Star Wars deity, the, the force, you know, the impersonal force that's just kind of there that holds the whole universe together or whatever Luke Skywalker says. No, we go only to the top theologians when I'm preparing. Okay. No, we don't Sit there and pray to an impersonal God who is out there some way, and we don't have to make ourselves believe that this impersonal God somehow cares for us, even if in some kind of an aloof sort of way. No, rather, see, being fully man, Jesus has experienced what real temptation is like. The only difference being <laughs> the only difference being is that He never succumbed to temptation which is why the very next verse of the writer of Hebrews in this passage says, therefore, because we have a high priest who can relate, who can sympathize, who knows what we are, what we're going through and what we need, and all of that, he knows therefore, or rather because we know that, we can draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. His substitutionary work as God, man, was more than just the cross and the resurrection. So the one who created the universe, that very one has experienced what we experience, and of course far worse. So when we pray to him, we can be certain that he knows what we are going through and what we need to get through it well. Mark then having written only what the Spirit wanted him to write moves quickly right along to verse 14 where John who only moments ago in the text by the way Mark rushes to tell it was at the Jordan now he's under house arrest and Jesus who was out in the wilderness somewhere is suddenly in Galilee preaching and what does the Spirit through Mark want us to hear Jesus say at this precise moment in his ministry verse 15 The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand, Jesus speaking. Repent and believe in the gospel. Now, repentance is a word that's gone out of vogue, including in the church. The the, the word in the original language means to basically do, this is putting it in a bit of a crass sort of way, but it's very accurate in an illustrative kind of way. It means to change direction, not by a few degrees, but basically to turn around, do a 180, and head the other way. When God commands us to repent, it's because we are going down a particular road that no matter how sincere we might be or insincere we might be, we are going the wrong way. When he says repent, he means do an about-face and go the opposite way, which is my way, which is the right way. When I left Bangor on that fateful Saturday after a conference to come back here to Waterville, And I saw the sign for Millinocket an hour later. The road sign was saying to me, repent, which means do it about face and head back the other way. That's what repent means. time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The kingdom of God, interchangeably used with the kingdom of heaven, is now standing here saying this. He's standing in front of them. The kingdom is marked by Christ's rule and reign. And what is one of the hallmarks of the inauguration of the kingdom of God when it comes on earth in its fullness? It is judgment. John 5.22 tells us, Not even the Father judges anyone, but He has given all judgment to the Son, to Jesus. Popular meditations on the kingdom of God on earth often tend to take on the sort of flavor of of a, a, a place where life is a free-for-all and fun. But the biblical kingdom of God is a world where lives are emulating and they are reflective of the life of the perfect Savior, who at this time, again, was standing in front of them. So the kingdom of God was at hand, which means woe. Not, whoa, W-H-O-A, but, whoa, W-O-E, to all who are living in rebellion to the king, who by his very presence reveals the kingdom of God. And that's why he says, repent. In Acts chapter 17, the context of which is the apostle Paul at a place called Mars Hill in Greece, And there he is addressing, and there are obvious believers in the crowd there at Athens, but there are mostly unbelievers and the religious people of Athens, but who are wayward being steeped in the pantheon of pagan mythology and in the god and goddess worship of Greece. And Paul notes that while they are a very religious people, they are out to lunch. Oh, Paul. Yeah, well, we know Paul. Paul's a hater. Haters hate. And this hater, Paul, tells these religious people that their religion is worthless. Beginning in verse 30. He tells them that where God overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent, do an about-face, and go in the opposite direction to what God wants, because God has fixed a day in which He will judge the world in righteousness. Through whom? Through a man whom He has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising Him from the dead. In Mark Jesus is baptized, he is tempted, and now he's in Galilee announcing what it means. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the only proper response from sinful mankind is to repent and believe in the gospel. In verse 4, we were told... John appeared for the baptism of repentance in verse 5, that the throngs were coming, confessing their sins, which is the vital first step in repenting. And now Jesus as Savior comes preaching repentance because he will return as the judge, and if you have not repented, you will be judged on your own merits, and that is not going to end well. you know, you kind of get the feel here that repentance is pretty important in the whole plan of salvation. But no, it's not merely important It is essential that you have indeed obtained the righteousness of the Savior as your your own. And yes, I worded that particularly carefully. Because one might protest with what I just said. Wait a minute. I thought salvation was Christ plus nothing. It is. One's repentance does not gain one's salvation. Let me say that again. One's repentance does not gain one's salvation. Rather, one's repentance is the evidentiary proof that one has obtained the righteousness of Christ. It is the evidence that you are, in fact, saved. Because the Spirit who comes into the believer at salvation, according to John 16, convicts the believer of sin, unto repentance. A number of years ago, of Paris, paraphrasing Romans chapter 2, had a song, the chorus of which was, it's your kindness that leads us to repentance, O Lord. So a person who lives in habitual sin, by evidence, by definition... A person who lives in habitual sin probably is not saved. And I only use say probably because only the Lord knows for sure. But for a person to maintain that they believe in Jesus Christ and, remember in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God and the Word dwelt among us. You cannot own Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and deny categorically when confronted with what is in this book. And so again, the Christian, due to again Christian, due to popular culture, or for whatever, and the constant onslaught of lies and deception starts to adopting the ways of the world, and are confronted point blank though with the truths of Scripture, and still refuse to repent and to walk in that way, is evidence. Because the Holy Spirit would be in them otherwise to convict them that they are not saved. We hear a lot about forgiveness today in the church. We hear a lot about love in the church. But we don't hear much at all about repentance. And it has been a big, a huge success in the battle plan of Satan. The lack of a need for repentance is one of the deceiver's masterful successes. And it has been impacting and affecting the mainline churches for several decades, but now it is roosting in so-called Bible-believing conservative evangelical churches within the last five years or so. And more and more, it almost seems like every day are coming under the sway. And the church, the so-called Bible-believing church, is starting to succumb with growing acceptance of the demonically inspired agenda of sexual deviancy. And it's happening at breakneck speed. Not only is it not spoken of in churches today in terms of needing repentance but it is embraced it is enabled and it is advertised o-n-a on the marquee open and affirming open is fine affirming is not this friday morning i was leaving for what i call my prayer loop i get in my car usually it's starbucks and then head out somewhere, just driving around aimlessly and praying. I'm on Upper Main Street heading towards Starbucks, and in front of me there's a little sputzy little car, and there's a cross sticker decal on the upper left-hand corner of the window, a white cross with the black words Jesus on that cross. Down here, there's another bumper sticker. It's for K-Love radio, which is a Christian radio station. Right next to that is Worship 95 FM, another Christian radio station. And right next to that is the rainbow sticker with equality for all on it. And I thought to myself, I wonder if they're going to Starbucks too. And if they are and they pull into the parking lot rather than going through the drive through because I was planning to go through the drive through I'm going to park instead and I'm also going to go in. And just say good morning. <laughs> Gently, tactfully. Harmless as. What is it? <laughs> Harmless as. <laughs> wise as serpents. There we go. Innocent as doves. Duh. My brother and I, my brother is a lay leader in his church in uh, northern Indiana. Of the RCA denomination, which is Reformed Christian of uh, Reformed yeah Reformed Christian of America, which is a very good denomination, very similar to us in our beliefs and doctrine and all of that. Well, he was telling me as we were talking, as he heads up the uh, Celebrate Recovery ministry at this humongous church in his spare time. And he was telling me that one of their churches just that previous week out in San Francisco, one of the RCA churches, their denomination, just announced that they've decided to do an about-face, and instead of going the way of the Lord, to go the wrong way down that road, to have a different view of the whole LGBT, lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgendered. Now, that would be the same as if a church, for example, to put it in context, in our denomination did such a thing. Well, needless to say, there is an uproar in the denomination. And pastors from my brother's church and many other churches throughout the country of that denomination have written their pastor. It's starting to happen in all of these formerly Bible-believing churches. Just either last week or the week before, Gordon College to our south, a church that has been going down a very precarious road for many years in many ways. Gordon College, which is a Christian college, parents, supposedly. Well, they announced, and I saw the poster myself and all, that they were bringing in, and it did happen, like I said last week or the week before, Dr. David Gushy, who is a Christian professor of ethics. He's written 20 books. I'm reading here from the little uh, blurb about him, including the award-winning volume that now is a standard reference book for evangelical leaders called Kingdom Ethics. Well, Dr. Gushy is completely rewriting his ethical and biblical approach to gay and lesbian men and women. The news has been welcomed by families, teachers, and religious leaders who realize that, get this, traditional evangelical teaching has hurt countless men, women, and teens. Traditional evangelical teaching, in other words, teaching the biblical doctrines, of marriage, of family, of man, of woman, and the certainty of gender and the gift of sexuality has hurt countless men, women, and teens. And I know from past incidences that I have questioned at Gordon College And it's always under that rubric of academia and just wanting to expose, you know, our students to all sides of all arguments. That's what education is by definition. And there is certainly a legitimate part to that. But when you bring in somebody who is sort of this highly respected so-called Bible-believing Christian... To whom churches and leaders look up to, and he is now coming in to sit before these wet behind the ears, pretty much empty headed biblically young people who are going to be listening now to this pinnacle, this icon in Christendom, having or listening to him explain how he has done it an about face, and now he is embracing the perversion of the homosexual agenda. What do you think those children are going to go away now believing no matter what you tell them from Scripture? Because this man standing in front of them, as far as they're concerned, is Bible-believing. And that, my friends, is what it means to stumble the weaker brethren and sister. May God have mercy on Gushy and Gordon College. I wouldn't send my dog to Gordon anymore. I would rather send my children to an absolutely atheistic pagan college than to a pseudo-Christian college, because at least you know where the lines have been drawn. This is just inexcusable. And I hope they pay for it. Literally, I mean. We're good. This is why I have to go for a bike ride when I'm done here. Both to improve the condition of my cardiopulmonary system, as well as to relieve a little pent-up anxiety. Well, we hear it all the time. We must be compassionate. We must be sensitive to love on such people. I just hate that phrase anyway. (laughs) To love on such people in order to gain the right to show them the love of Christ. Well, what happened when John went to the Jordan to baptize? Again, from Matthew's version. This, remember now, is a big public ordeal. It is an evangelistic crusade for sure. This is a time to be positive, to be comforting. Well, let's read the inspired, infallible, and errant authoritative words of God. Now, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm going to skip down, Libby, to now John himself had a garment of camel's hair and leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. But when he, John the Baptist, saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, Oh, brothers and sisters of the Pharisee-Sadducee sect, Uh, This is just such an answer to prayer. We are so glad that you are coming today to be baptized, following the Lord Jesus and all that he has commanded. Oh, I know that we have some differences in our theology, like you reject the Messiah, the Savior Jesus. But you know what? We're just going to invite you to come on in, and we're going to love on you. We're going to love on you and we're going to, you know, have a little potluck for you afterwards and just welcome you and embrace you because God forbid we don't want to judge your rancid Messiah-rejecting theology. Well, that's not exactly what happened. John sees the Pharisees and the Sadducees coming for baptism. And John says, you brood of vipers. He's a hater. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Therefore bear fruit in keeping with what? With repentance. The axe is already laid at the root of the trees. Listen to this metaphor here. He goes from being scurrilously angry and in their face to worse. Therefore every tree that does not bear good fruit, he's talking about you Pharisee and Sadducee, is cut down and thrown into the fire. As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, and I'm not even fit to remove his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. What does John mean, and with fire? I have heard some doozy exegesis of that passage. I should say, asegesis, Putting into it to what you want, instead of pulling out what is there. Well, you know, when the Holy Spirit visited the church for the first time in the book of Acts, right, there was a mighty rushing wind, sound of a rushing wind, and then people started speaking in tongues, and there was little visible, some kind of little flame thing over their heads. You know, and that's the fire, of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is going to come and is going to visit upon us gifts and signs and wonders and everything else through us. Hey, I got a novel thought here. How about we let the Scripture interpret the Scripture? And in fact, how about we let John interpret what he means in the very same passage? Shall we? He will come and baptize with Holy Spirit and with fire. Continuing the text. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will thoroughly clear his threshing floor and he will gather his wheat into the barn, meaning those who truly believe in him, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Yeah, Jesus is going to come with the Holy Spirit to those who believe and to those who do not believe they are going to perdition to the unquenchable fire. This does not feel-good. It obviously wasn't Pack-a-Pew Sunday. You know, let's not judge the Pharisees. Because, I mean, after all, they are coming, and we need to accept them. And maybe we can convince them of where they're off. Although, you know, I'm not sure anymore that they're that they're off. You know what I mean? I, I Let's look at another hater. John chapter 8. The Savior of the world is there, and there is a woman who is caught in adultery. You know the story pretty well. At the end of it all, Jesus says to the woman, Your sins have been forgiven you. Now, go and continue you're adultering. In fact, we're not just, you know, I i don't want to judge you. Who am I? Oh, yeah, I'm the Messiah. I'm all about love, you know. Forget truth. I'm just all about love. We're even going to sign you up on ChristianSingles.com, you know, to kind of help you out and enable things here. No, Jesus said to her, your sins are forgiven you. Now go and stop sinning. Oh, he's a hater. He's a hater. You see, the Christian church has forgotten that sin, wait for it, separates. It is our sin that separated us from God for all eternity. That's why he did everything that we're talking about in the Gospels and in Eastern Resurrection and all of that. Sin separates, and you know what? Sin still separates today in the body of Christ, or at least it is supposed to. Now, what do I mean? Everybody goes around like the Holy Spirit police with their little badge. Oh, yeah, brother, you know, that's not what we're talking about. But there's a reason why Matthew 18 points out the rules for excommunication concerning church discipline for a recalcitrant, that means a belligerent, unrepenting brother or sister who will not bow to the authority of the church. Then you take them to the end of it, and then you boot them out, and you are not to have anything to do with them. Oh, yeah, they Christians, they shoot their wounded. I want to pull my hair out, what's left of it. Hmm. Sin separates. And sin separates still today, even between Christian and non Christian. But let's make sure that it is the non Christian that chooses to separate. Make sure you understand that. There's a big difference here, and there's a problem with Christians, okay? Believe me, we do not have it all together. We are poor at confronting. We are hypocritical as can be. We don't know the scriptures, and so we look like fools most of the time when we go up against the people out there who have their acts pretty much together as far as what they believe and the way they can describe it and all. But if my confrontation or my conversation with a coworker or a colleague or a friend or what have, have you happens to, something comes up in conversation or they happen to ask me outright, what's my view about the whole Religious Freedom Act and all that and everything that's gone down the last couple of weeks in Indiana and, and people not wanting to bake cakes for homosexuals and discrimination and all of that, if my candid calm sensitive, and loving answer to them causes them to turn and run away, there is nothing I can do about that. What I am not obligated to do is to swallow what I really believe or to pull punches from what I really believe in hopes that, well, you know, it's not, I'm not to judge so that hopefully they won't turn and run And that maybe somewhere I'll be able to convince them. Yeah, that is the goal. But if telling someone the truth of God's word causes them to bolt, it is now between them and the Lord God Almighty. And I don't need to heap guilt upon myself for such situations. Look at Jesus again. The woman at the well, John chapter 4. I love that story. The woman at the well, she dares enter into theological discussion, and, of course, she's on one side of the with Jesus concerning theology. So Jesus says, yeah, I see where this one's going. We're just going to cut the brass tacks here and get her attention. He says, okay, you know what? Go home and get your husband and bring him back here. I want to talk to both of you. She says, well, I don't have a husband. He says, "Boom!" Hey, Don Pardo, tell the woman what she's won, a year of rice roni Bing, 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 bing. You're right. You've spoken truthfully. You don't have a husband. The fact is you've had five. And the guy that you're shacking up with isn't even your husband. Yeah, you've spoken the truth. It's about the only true thing you've said all day in this whole discussion. Now, do you think that Jesus was just ticked off and annoyed and wanted to get him just kind of smack her down because he was frustrated? Obviously not. But he did not let the truth get in the way of his saying. Yeah, you've spoken the truth. Now what happened with the woman at the well? Uh, uh, I, you, you're a hater, and haters hate. Oh, so If I ever am standing in person with someone and they say that to me, Lord have mercy and constrain me. Because <laughs> they might see, you're a passionate and pet pa- No, never mind. Jesus knew he was going to bleed, be punished, and came for the very purpose of redeeming that woman. He didn't hate her. He loved her em- enough to tell the truth. And did it get her get her attention? I'd say so. She didn't bolt from Jesus to run away, going, Ah, I don't need to stay just judgmental for her prayer, prayer She went back to her own hometown and her friends and everything else and said, Hey, you gotta come and listen to this guy. What he says is 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 it's crazy, true. He he told me things about myself that he couldn't have. No, come on. I want to bring you to Jesus. Would that that would be people's responses to us. Well, in closing, we did the Lord's table today. I talked about preparation at the outset of coming so that we don't partake improperly in just a little bit. I mean, I can't do it justice in the time we had or have. But repentance, you see, is a huge part of it. And I just have no doubt that on any given Lord's Supper Sunday in the Christian churches across this country, that there are people who are willingly, knowingly, Living in sin and you define whatever sin you want to but the point is they know it. They don't care because hey Jesus died for all my sins and so they're living that way and they come to the church their church and they come to the Lord's table and they eat the elements like no big deal. I'm doing it because Jesus forgave me so that I can live like hell so everything will be swell. Well, listen to the inspired, infallible, and authoritative words of God, the Apostle Paul, chapter 11, 1 Corinthians 27. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, he says... Many of you amongst your church at Corinth are weak and sick and a number sleep. That's a euphemism for our dead. They were dead. Some were weak, meaning they're going downhill, and some were just flat out debilitated with illness. And Paul says under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it was because they were coming and making a mockery of the Lord's table as just a punch card in their spirituality for the weak. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. Let me have you stand. Paul, come on up. Let's pray. Dear Lord, uh, Pastor Bill's uh, message today uh, stimulated in me uh, joy and sadness, Lord, uh, to to think that uh, the the message that we heard was uh, the word of God that uh, fulfills us, Lord, and completes us, but at the same time to hear that many people are turning away from that message, Lord. So I pray, Lord, that each one here uh, hears that message. I pray, Lord, that uh, when we serve the Lord, it brings extreme joy to you, Lord, and when we sin against you. It brings sadness, Lord. So I pray that each of us would repent and turn away from that sin. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.